The scripture reading today is from John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jenny. Let me add my welcome to Lisa's welcome to those of you who might be here for the first time this morning. We're so glad that you're with us. Uh, we want to uh, give a special greeting to those of you who have traveled to be here for the baptism today. We are so glad to have you with us here at MPC. For those of you who are joining us remotely, it's always good to have you in mind as we worship together. We are better together, but we thank the Lord for the opportunity that allows us to join even remotely in these opportunities. Today in the life of the church, we are celebrating something called Pentecost. You probably know that by now, which means actually 50th. It's just the number. Just as crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus fell on the Jewish holiday of Passover, which marked the deliverance of the Hebrews from the bonds of Egyptian slavery, so Pentecost is also anchored in the Hebrew calendar. It was originally an agricultural festival, marking the first fruits of the harvest, the first opportunity to harvest what the Lord had provided for the people. And it took place over several weeks as harvests do. It later became known as Pentecost, and it was celebrated on the 50th day after Passover. You all probably know the story in Acts chapter 2, where Luke recounts the giving of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit rested on the followers of Christ created quite a stir, actually. Well, just as the original agricultural feast of first fruits celebrated God's faithfulness to Israel in the provision of grain, for example, so here the metaphor is deepened and enriched. Because here God not only provides for our material needs, but he provides himself to each one of us in the person of his Holy Spirit. The question is why? What is the Holy Spirit? And for what purpose 
does he come? I'm going to give you a little homework assignment, and that is sometime today before this Sunday gets too far gone in your experience and you get busy with other things, take the opportunity to sit down and read chapters 14 to 17 in the Gospel of John. There you will be invited into a very intimate setting where Jesus explains at his fullest the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to prepare his disciples for what awaits them after he departs. And those chapters of 14 to 17 are John's record of his gathering with those disciples just before he was arrested and executed. But Jesus wants to reassure his followers even though these next days will be some of the most trying days of Jesus' life, of course, and for those disciples, Jesus wants them not to panic. Instead, he makes an extravagant promise to them. He says, you've seen all that I do. You will do more than I have done. And then he says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. I think we all need to hear that, don't we? That love expresses itself in action. After all, it's when you actually try to put Jesus' words into action that you find, wow, this is different than what I thought. What marriage, for example, can thrive if a spouse claims to love the other, but is regularly harsh or dismissive or selfish or worse. No, love, if it is love, expresses itself in action. And so it is with each one of us who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We too are in view when Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. And here we hear his command to obey and take it personally. But we need to remember two things. First, this command is unlike any other command you will have ever received in your life. This command is not the command of an autocratic narcissist or a tyrant. It comes instead from the only one you will ever know in your entire existence whose love for you is a perfect love, a love that seeks only your good, only your flourishing. There is no self-interest in the love of God. It is entirely focused on you. It is a love that has laid down its life for us. So, second, we come face to face with that love and we surrender. In Jesus Christ, we have finally met the one true God, the only God worthy of our surrender. And that surrender, a surrender to love, of love, leads us to understand that we only flourish, we only become all that we long to be and more in obedience to his command.
Because flourishing, unlike the conventional wisdom, is not found in the absence of restraint. Flourishing is found as we live into our purpose and calling. And if we have a calling, there is a caller, and we are privileged to know him by his name. But this doesn't simply mean, well, we got to try harder. I mentioned to you probably too often my own story, but perhaps you'll remember that I, after a very enthusiastic conversion in university years, came to the end of my willpower. You'll remember that at first I thought the Trinity was Father, Son, and Holy Willpower. But I realized when I came to the end of myself that the Lord had not invited me into a relationship with him only to have me run aground on the rocks of my own weakness. I see the same pattern in these first disciples. Makes me happy. Especially I see this pattern in the brash and cocky ones, like Peter, who was always telling Jesus that he had a better plan. Or the Zebedee boys, a.k.a. the Sons of Thunder. I wonder if they gave themselves that nickname. The answer, when we come up against our own weaknesses, is the Holy Spirit. When those disciples and their native gifts proved to be insufficient to the call, when they were confused or afraid, as they were, it was the Holy Spirit who strengthened them, who convicted them, who taught and equipped them, empowered them with a love that delighted to obey, and a courage that took them from locked doors to the ends of the earth. Jesus anticipates this in these three chapters in the Gospel of John. The Father will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in the lives of believers, who enables us to stay the course, even when we are tempted to give up in the face of our own failure or inconstancy, or when confronted by adversity, or fear, or doubt. None of this, friends, none of this is a surprise to Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the living Spirit of God, in residence in every believer, provides what we need, especially when we come to the end of our own native abilities. And often, I think, he brings us to the end of our own abilities so that we might be even clearer that we need a Savior. That's the first thing, that the Holy Spirit aids us in loving and obeying Christ. But there's more. The Holy Spirit's presence is the antidote to a fear that plagues us usually in the middle of the night, the fear that we are alone and that we are forgotten. I will not leave you as orphans, says Jesus. 
I will come to you. Who hasn't wondered, though, at our lowest moments, when God feels distant or seems inscrutable beyond our ability to understand? When circumstances conspire to bring us to our knees in doubt, we need to know that we are not alone. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus promised. It is the Holy Spirit's work to mediate the presence of Jesus to us. I heard this week from somebody who was quite surprised by an unexpected experience that was unlike any that he had ever had in his life. He was excited to tell me that he had a visceral sense of the closeness of God that he had never had before in his life. The Holy Spirit will live within you and be with you forever, says Jesus. Do you want an eyewitness account of what this looks like? In reading the letters of Paul, for example, which may be the most honest correspondence in all every collection of letters that we have. But when you read him, just look for one thing. Look for how often Paul credits the Holy Spirit for guiding him, helping him, directing him, correcting him, engaging him, encouraging him, ministering to him in moments of despair and weakness. You'll be amazed to find frequent and profound references to the Holy Spirit's work at the crucial junctures of Paul's life and work. The one that we think typically is so cocky and so full of himself that he doesn't ever need help. It's not the case. And if you read with that sort of eye, as a result, I think you will also be given eyes to see how the Spirit is at work in your own life. And there's one more aspect that I want to highlight for us this morning about the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the most remarkable of all. Jesus says, on that day when the Holy Spirit is given, you will realize that I am in my Father and that you are in me and I am in you. This is extraordinary. I am in my Father, says Jesus, you are in me, and I am in you. This is the Holy Spirit's primary work, to serve not just as your coach or companion. It's much more profound than that, even if it is deeply mysterious to every one of us. The Holy Spirit actually unites us, binds us to Christ. So the Christian life is not simply a matter of believing certain things. And it's not simply a matter of acting in particular ways. Of course, those things matter. But let me tell you what the heart of the Christian life is. The heart of the Christian life is about union. It's about communion. Union with God. Communion with God. Through Him, union with one another. The heart of the Christian life is the sharing of a restored relationship, having been forgiven and reborn, a new creation in union with God.
And this happens because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the bond of love between Jesus Christ and his Father. And it is the Holy Spirit that brings us into communion with the Son so that we might share in his relationship with his Father. What a privilege. Jesus has already said early on in this section that he is the way to the Father. The Apostle Paul talks about being in Christ more than 160 times in his letters. In Christ. This is the dominant way that believers ought to understand what it means to be a Christian. Before we talk about anything that we believe, before we talk about anything that we must do, it's about being in Christ. We who were dead have been made alive and drawn in, given the offer of new life and intimacy with the Father because of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit to help us cry out, it is Christ in me that is the hope of glory. He is our hope. He in us and us in him. It's this union that Jesus found so compelling that he could speak of little else during these last urgent hours with his disciples because he knew what was coming. He knew that they were going to need a foundation upon which to set their hopes because their world, unbeknownst to them, was about to come crashing down around their shoulders as it does for every one of us at some point. I'm telling you now, before it happens, says Jesus, I don't want you to be surprised. I want you to have hope. Understand what is on offer here. To be in Christ, to have him take up residence in us by the Holy Spirit. This is the only path that, that can survive, that can provide a hope that can survive the grave. It is hope, a hope that is anchored not in our own optimism, our ability to stir up a positive mental attitude. It's anchored not in the strength of our wills. It's anchored not in the pleasant circumstances that we may enjoy. It is a hope that is anchored in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that provides us with a confidence in a future that has already been guaranteed for us in Jesus Christ. So that we may then freely acknowledge in light of a love that will not let us go, we can freely acknowledge our own fears and disappointments. Friends, there's no more need to hide we are excellent hiders, but there's no more need to hide if there's nothing that you can do that's going to surprise God that he doesn't already know about you. His love is not contingent on you putting on a good front. He knows all about you. And before you were born, he died for you. So we're free to acknowledge our fears and our disappointments without putting the relationship at risk. We might confess our doubts and our wrongdoings, our suspicions and our temptations, and lay them before him because we know that he will not turn away from us. We can actually bring these things to the physician of our souls so that we might be healed. 
because Jesus Christ has taken on the world at its worst, and he has vanquished it. If we are in him, and he is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we too are the beneficiaries of his victory. For nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. An amen would be really good right about now. Amen. Just checking. I'm working hard up here, you know. It is this hope, a hope that's anchored in the reality of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that allows us then, ironically, most fully to enter into the pain of a broken world. Yesterday, I got a call from a good friend. He's a young father of two, <clears throat> husband, and he was calling to tell me that his neurologist had just diagnosed him with ALS. He was asking me to pray with him and to help him walk this walk in the hope of Christ. Don't you think that it was the Holy Spirit that was stirring him up in that moment to approach this dreaded diagnosis with such courage and hope? For the last three days, I've been in Roanoke, Virginia, because my father-in-law died unexpectedly on Wednesday. Betsy's father. But as we gathered, the three sisters and a few of the rest of the family, there was such a good percentage, a ratio of laughter and tears. Because we knew that we were commending Richard B. Smith to the Lord, who has loved him and has prepared a place for him, as Jesus says in John 14. So you see, this intimacy with the Holy Spirit doesn't guarantee an easy life, but rather, ironically, it allows us to enter in more fully to the pain of this world in a way that refuses, on the one hand, to romanticize it by thinking it can be easily fixed or treated or given a medicine, or a policy, or if it wins a lottery ticket. It refuses to romanticize the pain of the world, and on the other hand, it refuses to give in to despair. But there is a danger, and the danger is this. As you give yourself to the possibility of this deeper and stronger vision of hope, as you begin to long for a creation to be restored, as you give yourself to that longing and desire for it, it gets risky, doesn't it? I actually think a lot of us are afraid to long because we fear that there might not be an answer to it. We fear that Nietzsche might be right that all there is in this world is grabbing what we can in the moment and holding on. But that is not a biblical vision of life, nor is it biblical hope. 
the gospel invites us to desire something more, to embrace the hope that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. But do know this, the greater the longing, the desire for that new heaven and new earth, for a deeper connection, for a deeper change, the longing for healing and restoration, make no mistake, it raises the stakes for daily life. But it also gives us a clarity of vision that makes us no longer willing to settle for boredom, cynicism, for the hollowed out lives that threaten so many of us. Friends, my conviction over this nine months that we have had together is that our life together, however imperfect, is a signpost of just this kind of hope. Of course, there is no earthly configuration that can compete, complete that longing because we are made for more than this world can provide. But there is something signaled, even if not satisfied, in the best of our relationships. They're all provisional, of course, but the Holy Spirit nevertheless is secretly growing a seed of hope that sprouts up in surprising ways with a foretaste of new creation in the craziest of places, providing daily assurance that the longing we dare to express is not in vain, that the future has been won for us in Jesus Christ, and it is only in the Holy Spirit that longing can find its redemptive end, which is joy. We live in a world that is not confident of these things. Al Zalinus, a writer, asks us to imagine it this way. Say, in the flattest part of North Dakota, on a starless, moonless night, no breath of wind, a man could light a candle, then walk away. Every now and then, he could turn and see the candle burning. 17 miles later, provided conditions remained ideal, he could still see the flame. Somewhere between the 17th and the 18th mile, he would lose the light. If he were walking backward, he would know the exact moment when he lost the flame. He could step forward, find it again, back and forth, dark to light, light to dark. What's the place where the light disappears? Where the light reappears? Don't tell me about photons, eyeballs, reflection and refraction. Don't tell me about 186,000 miles per second and the theory of relativity. All I know is that place where the light appears and disappears, that's the place where we live. 
I think he's right. But to be a Christian, to have declared your loyalty to Jesus Christ as Lord, to be a member of National Presbyterian Church, is to take up your post, to be stationed in the borderlands of longing, in that liminal space between despair and hope, between death and life, between heaven and hell. It is to bear witness in your words and in your way of life to the one who in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension has already traversed the dangerous ground and whose spirit lives within you together so that you in turn might bear the flame, might be the welcome home beacon to the increasing number of those in our world who don't know where home is. I pray that the Lord may give you faith in the face of fear, a hope that swallows your temptation to despair, a love that knows joy as its birthright and its end. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, O Lord, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage together. Keep your eye on the light. Feed the flame. Let's pray. Stir up within us, Lord, a renewed hope that looks to you when everything around us proclaims that it's foolish. Stir up within us, Lord, a love for you that takes seriously for the first time or for the millionth time what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And will you help us, Lord, regardless of our age and place in life, to be explorers of these borderlands of longing, that we might look to you, follow you, and be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.